Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Views on View. Today on our panel, we have Eric, author of Vue.js in Action. Hello, hello. I'm Divya, developer advocate at Netlify and contributor to Vue. And today's guest, we have Tessa, who is a UI developer, teacher, and community organizer. Tessa, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Tessa. Those are all the things I was going to say. I'm sorry. No <laughs> worries. Hey, folks, I just want to let you know quickly about Netlify. Netlify is a really cool system for hosting what are traditionally known as static sites. However, the real benefit that I've been finding is that I don't have to mess with a back end. I can just set things up. I build the website out. I've been using a system called 11DJS and you just deploy it. And then anything that you have that you want to do, you can do on the front end. So if you want to pull in some kind of database with Firebase or something else, if you want to collect form data, Netlify provides all kinds of services that make it easy to do all that stuff. If you're trying to do serverless, they have a really, really neat serverless setup that will allow you to deploy your websites without having to deploy a backend and it'll do some of the work for you. I just I just love it. So if you're looking for a way that you can actually deploy a website that only has front-end technology in it, gives you all the tools that you typically need for the back-end without having to actually program the back-end, then give them a try. Go check them out at Netlify.com. Cool. So what, what are you excited about currently, Tessa? I guess right now what I'm excited about is uh, finding better ways to build reusable components and also preparing for a talk I'm giving that was inspired by some difficulties I ran into building said components. Oh, awesome. So can you talk more about the component work that you've been doing? So my dream, my unfulfilled dream is like to build a reusable component library that is documented in Storybook or something where developers can see all of the different reusable components that they can use and all the different ways that they can combine them and also see everything kind of working with the style guide to make life as, as a UI developer less painful and more efficient. And so far, like what I've been doing is just building reusable components into our existing apps. But eventually, I would like to be able to extrapolate all of those out into some kind of structured system. So when you say you're... You, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, oh, no problem. I was going to say reusable components. Isn't all components reusable? What do you mean by that term, reusable components? That's a good question, Eric. I guess what I mean by reusable components is that they're designed with that intent in mind going into it. So like the API for the components are clear. For example, we have probably as many types of implementations of buttons in our app as we have buttons. And as opposed to like just one button that everybody uses. And I think part of the reason is because right now there isn't really a good way to surface that like, hey, somebody already designed a button that looks like our wireframes and here's how you use it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely when I think about components, there's different approaches that you can have when you create them. I guess you can't make a component that's not reusable at all. That's just, is you're gonna only use it in one place, but having the, the forethought to say, yeah, how can I design this in such a way that multiple people can use it? It's composable, is, is really smart. Yeah, I, I agree with that idea. So do you do that? Are you talking a lot about props or, or slots or transclusion? Is that sort of the idea that you're having when you're, when you're designing these? Transclusion? As in, in other words, are you using like slots where you can easily 
pass information from a parent component to a child component, things like that? Yeah, I guess all of those things. To be honest, I just started using slots like in January. I was something that I was always really afraid of. I don't really know why. I think maybe because I would always get taken right into scope slots and I still haven't completely wrapped my head around that. But yeah, slots and props. And uh, this is going to sound really dumb, but I make a lot of custom input components. And it just occurred to me for the first time like a month ago that, hey, what if instead of using props and event emitters, I tried to make it work with vModel? And I don't know why that never occurred to me before, but just things like that. That's fair. I feel like with custom input, I'm actually working on a bunch of custom inputs as well. And vModel is really cool because it gives you automatic reactivity. But the moment you want to do specific customizations with like keyboard events or any other event emitters, like vModel doesn't cover all use cases because vModel is just like value and input, right? And so, or like an on-change event. And so if you wanted something like key press or key up, key down, then you kind of get into this nebulous territory where vModel can't help you. It's like, uh, so. Even with input and vModel, it was like, oh, well, as soon as I set it up to work with vModel, I'm done. And then it seems like there's all sorts of edge cases with input that I didn't really think about that weren't necessarily being addressed by vModel. That might also be because, like, when I was playing around with it, I was using just a plain HTML input. But in our app, we're using Beautify. So, like, that comes with a whole bunch of stuff. So since you're, you're, you mentioned you're using Vutify in your app, are you building components on top of Vutify? So Vutify has component, a component library in and of itself, right? So are you building custom components with Vutify? So it's like components with components. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's also a debate over whether we should be using a component library or building everything from scratch. And I'm not really sure which side of that debate I'm on, but... I do think that if if we're having like a very, um, I'm not really, really sure how to put it. Like our design looks very much like you look at the material design specs and like how they describe what a button would look like or how an input would look like, for example. And that's what our components look like right now. So I think if we stick to that design style, then it might be worth it to leverage something like Beautify where they already spent time recreating that aesthetic. But uh If we do, then I do think that we should still have some kind of wrapper around it. Like it was, it was an idea that I kind of thought around for a while. And then when I went to Chris Fritz's, um, it was like a component patterns workshop or something at ViewConf Toronto. And he talked about wrapping all components, even if you don't customize them. So like, for example, if I was using Beautify and I was using their input as is, I would still put a wrapper around it so that if we change our component library, which is actually something that happened right before we switched to Beautify, like we switched from Material to Beautify, right? Now all of those components, wherever they've been used, have to be refactored to work with Beautify. But if we had a wrapper around it to begin with, then that's something that we wouldn't have to worry about. And that's something I thought about on the previous app I worked with as well, where we worked with Element. And I was like, well, the API for Element components and the API for custom components can be pretty different how to handle that. And I think the wrapper approach seems like a pretty effective way, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense completely. So when you're building components, then do you think about, because you, you talked about the way that you, your, you and your team work on building specific components. Do you have like 
what's your approach to building stuff like in terms of UI and design? Do you have a design team that you work with for figuring out how exactly you want your component to look and feel? Or is it very much like a prototype where it's like a back and forth, like you build something and you're like, maybe (laughs) this works. Yeah. Can you speak more to that? Yeah, we don't have a design team anymore, although that's something that I'm interested in. So I'm taking design classes right now after work, actually. But uh, we do have somebody putting together designs. And I find that working on the UI slash front end side of things, it does involve a lot of design work and not having a design team, I guess it involves more design work than like even the normal extent to which a UI developer has to kind of temporarily step into the role of design, right? Because there's a lot of potential states or edge cases or other weird areas that an app can get into that maybe a designer wouldn't have the bandwidth or context to predict beforehand. So there is a lot of back and forth. Sorry, I kind of... Yeah, no, definitely... To the question? Yeah, no, 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 definitely. Because I've worked with design teams as well. And there's a lot of, like, it ends up being a back and forth process because sometimes like a designer would be like, this is a possible interaction because it's cool and interesting. But from a like inter implementation perspective, it's like, oh, this is actually going to be like so many edge cases we have to cover. Like I can think of many different, for, so going back to like input events, for example, and if you want like specific key presses to like do other things, or you want like, for example, as you're typing for like things to happen. So like, I think similar to, I think Sarah Drasna has an example where as you're typing, it like creates these explosion effects or something, which is like crazy and cool, but it also requires you to like capture those events as they're happening and then propagate events at the same time. So yeah, there's, there's always that back and forth of like, okay, this would be really cool if we did, but with the time constraint and with like the developers available, what can we do? So yeah, it's very much a back and forth process. So when you're building components, then do you think about them? Because we talked a little bit about slots and I know slots is something that we're really, like you mentioned that you're a bit afraid of. And I think that's a very common reaction to slots because it's kind of scary. The whole idea of slots is that it's not presentational, it's very functional. So it's the idea that you have all the interaction or the events like built into this thing, but then you have to give it a skin. And I'm curious how you've used slots. I know you haven't used it a lot, but in your experience of building components, what are some examples of when you've you've reached for slots over presentational components? Presentational components meaning like... Or just like something... So slots versus slots where there's no like styles or anything associated with that thing. So if it's like an input element that has no, that uses slots, then all you're doing with that is you're just doing key press, key up, key down, whatever, at change events versus like an input with styles where you're styling all of those things additionally. I see. Okay. I might be misunderstanding the question, but I definitely did not use slots that way. So now I'm low-key like, oh, shoot, did I like misunderstand slots? Like wrapping components with other components to affect behavior is definitely something that I'm more consciously thinking about since ViewConf Toronto because Adam gave a talk about that kind of approach and I thought it seemed really interesting and smart. And I was like, oh, I wish that it occurred to me like as a conscious thing to do before. (laughs) But in terms of slots, like the way that I... I'm using them now. I don't remember what specific problem that I needed to fix 
uh, before I went on vacation at the beginning of the year, but I was building some kind of menu and I wanted it to be reusable where like, I didn't know what the content was, but I knew what the menu would look like. So I think that was where I had initially started using it. And then I used it again recently because I had like a kind of menu toolbar kind of situation, like what you might have at the top of an app. And there were two different menus and the icons or the titles in the menus might be slightly different, but they had the same layout where they had a bunch of buttons and things aligned on the right and a bunch of text aligned on the left. So I made them share a common like menu bar component where the slots were the left side and the right side. And then in the component with the slots, I flexed everything to either the left or the right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I've used slots and I've also equally confused myself over slots (laughs) before multiple times. Interestingly, the API has changed as well. So in the past, yeah, so before 2.6, you had this idea of slot scope, which like nobody knew how to say, (laughs) because everyone was like, is it scope slot or slot? It's scoped slots, but the API is slot scope, I believe. Is that right, Eric? Correct me if I'm wrong, but um, yeah. And so it changed recently. So now it's just like slot. I think it's V dash slot or something like that. And there's that, um, like, controversial hashtag shortcut. Oh, I haven't used that yet. I've just used, like, just the straight-up V-slot. Yeah, because, like, right when I was I was implementing that menu bar, I saw, oh, they changed the API. And at first, yeah. it was for scope slots. I thought it was just for name slots. And so yeah. since we're using the slightly older version of you in, in our app, I have, like, a play app where I experiment with random stuff when I'm trying to figure out problems. And so I updated view and I tried using the hashtag and I was like, oh, okay, great. Like it's, it's a new way to name slots, even though I don't know about the choice of the hashtag. But then I went to put it in my app and I was starting to struggle with like, oh, what if I want to pass things down to a slot versus like push them uh, up yes, and yeah. then looking into scope slots. And then I was like, oh no, it's scope slots. So I completely <laughs> misunderstood. Why did it work before? I don't know. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. Scope slots is a little bit of a rabbit hole. Um, It's one of those things that you understand and then you're like, wait, is this really what I think it is? I like to think of it as like a wrapper. So I think it was Alligator.io, one of those blogs where there was an example of explaining scope slots and they used a burger to explain it, which I thought was great because like you can think of it as like the burger buns and then whatever's in the middle you can get you can like kind of customize essentially so like the sl- the scope slot like there's a slot and then you can just like figure out what's within it so if you want like a double patty or a single patty or cheese or whatever you can do that and then the burger itself like okay it makes sense to me it might be a terrible example but no that sounds like a great example I'm, i w- actually did a video on it a few weeks ago when 2.6 came out with the new vslot syntax and yeah yeah just trying to explain it it's it's one of those things in viewers it's pretty confusing to most people and i've i've been in the same place from trying to explain especially when you do something more fancy and you're moving information exactly trying to get information in with different layers yeah, that it comes a little confusing but yeah it's something that i've tried so i've spoken with like react developers as well and render props tends to be like a very popular pattern not anymore i think because they changed their api i have no idea i haven't written react in like a year so (laughs) back maybe last year 
when render props was popular, um, that was the corollary to sim- like we could use render props to explain what scope loss is trying to do. Like it's very similar of a pattern. I found it really useful from like a functionality perspective because like what you were saying, Tessa, when at ViewConf Toronto and Adam's talk, how he uses slots is like essential or scope slots is essentially how I use it because there's a lot of pieces like going back to we were talking about custom input components. So I'm working on custom inputs for like specifically input masking. So if you're like trying to type and you want your numbers to be separated by the thousands, that's input masking. I use a scope slot component or yeah, a scope slot component that has all of that functionality that it just passes down to like whatever is contained within it. So I can grab any of those like listeners or whatever. So I use like beyond listeners. So my input automatically gets bound to the listeners based on the scope slot events, if that makes sense. Yeah, so it's it's kind of like mind-boggling and confusing because I've actually tried to work on it. So it's pretty extrapolated. So there's like the scope slot or like the actual component or the renderless component as you will and then there's the actual like styled component when I use the renderless component but it's interesting because I've seen examples where people have just had one single component and then they use things like next tick and like it changes Not next tick. <laughs> because like in my case I'm like okay there's one component and there's a component within that component so like how does that change in terms of lifecycle events and so on? Because, yeah, I was like, I don't think next tick will work in this case. But, but yeah, we can talk about next tick in a bit. We don't have to talk about it now. But for those of you listening, Tess is giving a talk about next tick at ViewCon. If it gets and done she's, in time. She's very excited about it. <laughs> it'll get done. It'll get, I think it'll be great. Because you gave like a small version of that talk at ViewConf Toronto and I thought it was wonderful. So I think it'll be great. I'm going to talk, talk about that in a bit. But I also know that that's some, one of the things that you work on in addition to like component libraries and UI development and stuff, that's something that you're excited about is also teaching because you mentioned a little bit about that when we were talking before this. But like, can you talk more about what you're doing like in terms of teaching and organizing and being involved with the community in general? Yeah, teaching is something I got into in high school because we had a community service requirement and one of the things that we could do is teach and it wasn't really something that I had thought I would be doing again after high school but when I was in university they had a program where students could teach classes for credit in areas that they were interested in so I was teaching like comics and comic theory and then when I started studying coding like I went into it knowing that so I went to a women's boot camp, and the one that I went to, like it had a, a teaching fellowship program, which seems to be a pretty common thing at boot camps. So, like before the school even existed, and like when I was looking at boot camps, I went into it with pretty much the goal of becoming a teaching fellow. I was like, that sounds really fun. I want to do that. And it just kind of continued on from there. Like when I was studying, we had to give a tech talk, and I thought this seems like a really fun and interesting way to both help me solidify my knowledge better and also share that knowledge with other people. And I've always liked really dumb metaphors, I guess. And teaching gives you a lot of opportunities to inflict dumb metaphors on unsuspecting students. So between uh, the boot camp where I, I still 
teach some introductory JavaScript courses to potential students or mentor incoming students and the meetup where I try to organize talks and also sometimes give talks myself. I guess that's, yeah, how I'm teaching. That was a terrible way to end that sentence, but there we go. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. I actually really like, I think metaphors, as dumb as they are, are really useful teaching mechanisms because they give students a mental model to think about something, especially if the concept is very confusing. Like we were talking about scope slots, and for me, burgers make the most sense to explain it, but to someone else it might not. But I think what is most important is just the ability, like the clarity of how you present content. And so with a metaphor, as dumb as it may be, it actually helps people with like the way that they cognitively like put concepts together. Because then they're like, wait, what was that concept again? But they remember the metaphor and then it leads them down towards the, oh yeah, this was the actual concept that like Tessa was teaching us about. <laughs> and, and it's super useful in general, but yeah. I was just talking to Joe Eames who used to be on this podcast and he was talking about this type of teaching where it's basically I do something and then we do something and then you do something. So it's kind of this way of, of teaching so you can get interaction between not just you know, you teaching something, but also how the uh, the other person learns. So do you ever feel like that, Tessa, when you're trying to teach? Do you ever think about that as well? Sorry, do I think about the model of I, I teach, we do, you do? Yes. I guess not necessarily explicitly in in that way, although I do think that that seems like a great idea, especially if we think back to the there's that theory of different types of learning, right? With the kinetic learners and the visual learners. And I forget what the third type was, not that kind of learner. Um, And so it seems like the I do, we do, you do is both collaborative and guided and you're like setting up a structure, but also it can kind of cater to at least some area of different ways that people process information. And even though a lot of times in the classes that I'm teaching, there is a very restricted format or like with the talk, there's a restricted format. I do try to set up questions or find other ways to allow listeners or students to interact, even if they can't necessarily answer the question, but to introduce a question and then come back to it later so that they are kind of, um, it's been so long since I've taught comics. I cannot remember the term, but there's an idea there about like the gap or the liminal space between two panels where your mind has to kind of fill in the blank of the action that happened there. So even something as simple as, I think the example uh, Scott McCloud gives in Understanding Comics is like there's an axe race or something in one panel and then in the next panel, the axe is like down. And so your mind is interpolating the two and being like, oh, somebody swung an axe and it might seem really simple and basic, but that act of filling in the blanks there is kind of a a powerful way to engage the mind, I think, and help learn. So that's something that questions and answers can try to recreate in in listeners' minds, if that's making sense. Yeah. Yeah, because I think questions are a really effective way to keep people engaged with the content that you're presenting. But how do you present or how do you ask questions? Because a lot of the times I've been in classes and I'm even guilty of this where I ask open-ended questions where no one gives a response to things because you're like hey this is a question here's a question like how many of you do this and then no response or did you understand this exercise and so like I'm not a teacher 
I know Chris, who's not on the podcast today, but he has a lot of experience with this. But what has been your experience and what, what is your um, like coping mechanism or what are te- techniques that you use to be effective in that way? Yeah, I, I've definitely faced that a lot. Like I'm facing that in class right now where the teacher will be like, what do people think about this design? And then me and my friend Zach will always be like ready to talk. And she's like, not, not you two. You always have input for everything, which is great, but I want somebody else to speak, right? But then we're just waiting for someone to be brave enough. And I thought there's got to be a better way to approach this problem where people are encouraged to speak up, but like we don't have to, because it's after work and we only have like three hours a day. So that time is very precious. And then I felt really silly because I was like, well, I do, I do do something different in my classes if I'm asking for specific questions, which is a, a term I overheard in college once called voluntelling. So instead of asking, yeah, like, what does anybody think of this? Or like, who knows what that is? I pick somebody and then I tell them that they're going to answer my question. So that's one tactic if it's like I'm expecting like people to share their specific opinions. When it's a poll, I feel like it's, more helpful to like instead of asking affirmative questions sometimes it's helpful to ask I forget what the opposite is called but like who is having trouble understanding this but also trying to really be in there with your students and convey that that's actually the norm like you expect that to be the case and that's fine or in terms of polls I kind of set up the audience at UConf Toronto in my lightning talk where I asked them like who thinks this pattern is like a good pattern who thinks it's not a good pattern who never participates in these polls and that question <laughs> got a pretty big response yeah I liked I actually really liked how you did that because it was very it was like empathetic towards being an audience member where like most of the time you're like I don't really want to participate and yeah so, I feel yeah. like also you feel like it doesn't really matter so that kind of shows that you're there with them and you know how they're feeling hopefully yeah 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 but I particularly like I like the idea of volunteering in a way like it can be a bit like intimidating to point out specific people and then ask them what they think but it's also I think a very effective way for you to be perceptive of your students so you're like oh this person looks like they have like from the glimmer in their eyes something interesting to say but they don't want to say it Hard to see the glimmer if they're not making eye contact. Yeah, sure. that's true. <laughs> that is true. Yes. But yeah, teaching is definitely one of those things that requires a lot of just understanding who your students are, where they're coming from. In your experience, do your students generally have a similar background or how do you meet them at the same level? Because sometimes there's a lot of students that are like super beginner, some who know a lot. How do you meet them halfway? Yeah, I, I do find that like with the particular classes that I've been teaching lately, which are basically like we're going to program a bunch of Google Apps scripts together to show you maybe some more interesting beginner JavaScript exercises than console logging things over and over again. So a lot of times in those classes, there are a lot of people who have way more experience and knowledge than me, like they've been C developers for 20 years or something. And then people who are just curious to to start things out. So I think setting out the expectations in the beginning of like what the purpose of the class is and the different things that you can get out of it. And also for each exercise. So for example, we have a pseudocoding exercise, just being very clear about like, this is not about 
syntax or knowing how to program like that stuff is great too but this is really about thinking about the order with what you want to approach things and achieve your goal i think is kind of a helpful way to let everybody come at it from where they are right now yeah so if you have a student that's really advanced in your classes how does that approach work i mean how do you not slow down the class for the the slowest learner and keep it going that's a really good question. I'm not sure. I think I think in my experiences, so for example, like in the design class now, we're going over a lot of InDesign stuff, but the things that we're learning in InDesign overlap a lot with my knowledge of Photoshop, which I've been using for like 20 years. And as well, I've played a little bit with InDesign before, so I am a lot more familiar with the tools than my classmate who is really unfamiliar with all of these programs. And so when she gets stuck and she's on the slower end for learning InDesign and I'm on the slightly faster end just because I have an advantage there experience-wise, I step in and I help her or I give her hints and I remind her of things or like instead of if she's like, how do I do this thing? Answering her question, I might ask her a question. And in some of my classes, I've noticed that I'll have students who have a lot more questions than others. And when they ask them in the chat, sometimes it's like, I don't even have to handle a question because one of the more experienced students will step in. So I guess it's more about creating an atmosphere maybe where everybody feels like they have something to contribute and everybody feels like they have something to learn. So you can foster a sort of culture where when a slower student is asking a question or is struggling, then maybe a faster student can step in and help them keep up, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's awesome. That's that's a great answer. I haven't thought about that. But yeah, if you have this great culture in your classroom and you're encouraging students to help each other, then that can really speed things along. I want to move on to a different topic about organizing communities and, and meetups. I live in a small town. I'm, I want to create a, a, a meetup for Vue.js fans. This is kind of a large topic and you can take it wherever you want. Like, do you have some tips for me? Like, what should I do to organize this meetup? What are some things I should look out for? Well, I guess first my question would be, what are what are you excited about? Like, what do you want to achieve with the meetup? And what do you see as potential challenges right now or things that you're worried about being potential blockers going into starting the meetup? Well, one blocker I have is that I, I know there's at least one other meetup in town that's more of a general JavaScript meetup. We don't have a meetup specifically for Vue.js, which I think would be kind of cool for the community. So I would love to spread the Vue.js world to my fellow developers in where I live. And then also to just kind of meet other people who are doing the same work that I do. That would be fun. That, so kind of the community aspect as well. But I also understand that you know I'm not in a huge town, so there's not millions of people. There's only about 300,000 people in Reno where I live, Reno Sparks. So that's kind of some what some of the things I'm thinking of. So you're concerned that because the town is small, then maybe it a crowded space with the JavaScript meetup being there as well, or something else? Yeah. So my concern would be like there's not enough people interested, and in, in like how to get people, how to get a location, how to get people to show up, and then maybe that's something I shouldn't be concerned about. Maybe if I have only got two people to show up, that would be a success because at least I was able to connect to two people and I could teach what I know to them and they can teach what they know to me. Yeah, I think that feeling like enthusiastic about the meetup turnout, even if it is only one or two people, is definitely 
a great skill to have and it's not an easy, easy thing to do for sure, right? If you put all this effort into planning something and then only two people show up, like it's amazing that two people showed up, but at the same time, like, sorry, getting sidetracked. That's good. Yeah, I think part of the thing might be just trying to get a gauge on how many Vue.js developers there are in your group. Or um, I think when we started, we had Evan give a talk on what is Vue, and that probably had a big crowd partially or mostly because it was Evan. But I think also coming into it with like, here's a bunch of talks about what Vue is and how to use Vue, how to test Vue, kind of made it so that you didn't already have to know Vue to be able to participate. Or like at the beginning of last year, we gave a workshop on how to do Vue and another one in the middle of the year, not just to try and generate more potential speakers for the meetup, but also to give people an in to the meetup. Because I think a lot of people, this is my impression, is like they'll see a meetup and they think the topic is interesting, but they they are like, well, I don't know anything about X, so I'm just not going to go. And so I always try to at least consciously think about designing the meetup in such a way that like, even if you don't know anything about Vue, you can still find value in the talks and in the community and find it interesting. Sorry, I'm kind of rambling, but no, I- that's perfect. Yeah, yeah, that's great advice. Being being clear about the kind of culture that you want to cultivate, I think, as well, because it seems like one thing that people do like, like you said about meetups, is meeting people. So if they're attracted to the culture, then regardless of the topics, I think that they will hopefully keep coming back. So like the first meetup could be like the introduction to Vue.js and I could give like an hour talk on it and that would attract people who aren't already doing Vue.js, but everybody. And then from there, we could keep a culture open that that welcomes everyone. And it's not like we wouldn't do a talk on like specific technical scope slot. I mean, we, that might come up during the talk, but we might have some more broad topics that would entice a lot of people to come. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess if you wanted, you could go the clickbait route, right? And be like, do you love hamburgers? Don't you wish you could code hamburgers all day? Come to this talk on scope slots. But yeah, I feel like having, having an intro talk or even like maybe you could give a mini lightning intro talk at the JavaScript meetup, right? To increase interest and awareness of Vue and a potential Vue meetup. And that could then your first talk at the Vue meetup could build on whatever you talk about at the JavaScript meetup. Yeah, that's a good idea too. I, I know there's a there's a there's several companies in town too that use Vue. So I know there are, are developers, and there's some companies that are looking to move from React or or an old Angular one is pretty it's a pretty popular migration plan for companies that want to move to something. So yeah, that's interesting. That's good. Idea. I th- I think it's also really cool, like because organizing a meetup is like isn't of itself a lot of work, right? Or it, it takes some work. It's not like because you have to find a venue, you have to find like money or sponsors so you can give food because people get angry if you don't offer food. Um, so and like and speakers and like there's a lot of extra work because I help um, co-organize the view meetup in Chicago and so yeah th- that's always something that like we struggle with because Chicago's a big city but in terms of view developers like it's still a smaller number compared to like a framework like React for example and one of the things that is really successful is if you kind of like guerrilla market to kind of just see who is out there writing Vue. So you'd go to a JavaScript meetup, you'd give a talk about Vue at the JavaScript meetup 
and then people will talk to you about it and you kind of build a community from communities that already exist. And that's like a good start if you're like, I don't know if I want to do a meetup. I don't know if it's too much work. This is one way to just kind of feel out the community. And, and me, most meetups are more than happy to have speakers. They're like, they're always looking for peak. So if you spoke about Vue and then kind of found people that way, and then that's a good way for you to not only find a community, but also potential sponsors, because then you'll know like this company writes Vue as well, or is just migrating their stack over. So they might be really willing to sponsor or give you money or so on. And that's really cool. And we've done that um, here as well. Just like we're trying to grow the Vue community base, but we also give talks at like JavaScript meetup. We've talked to like the React meetup people and like various other things. So like kind of moving that way also is useful for building a community from the ground up. Yeah. And that's like also, I feel like a form of volunteering to go back to that, right? Because it's like, well, I got into meetup organizing because I was intimidated by it. And so I thought, okay, I'm just going to try it. So even though I am, I do tend to be kind of shy and intimidated. I just keep on telling myself, well, this is why I wanted to do it. (laughs) And also it's not for me. So that makes it a little bit easier. But whenever you you hear people coming up to you and talking about Vue or you hear that a company uses Vue and just jumping on that opportunity and being like, hey, that sounds great. When do you want to give a talk on it, right? That's like a way to build up your host and uh, speaker stack, I guess. But once you become aware of opportunity that you need to have opportunities, I think you start to notice potential opportunities more and then you start to jump on them more. And it's just kind of like a, I feel like I'm always working on the meetup, but yeah, I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> I hope that was helpful. No, it's good. Good. Yeah. So you are currently an organizer for View, View NYC. Is that right? Yeah. That's awesome. How long has that been going on for? Uh, I think we started in August of 2017, maybe. So we're on the, this month is going to be our 20th official event. We've had a couple of side events as well. But yeah, I believe April is going to be view 20. Wait, March. March is going to be March. 20. <laughs> That's cool. That's so cool. I think it's it's really great, especially when you're someone who really likes a specific framework or you feel passionate about it and then you build a community around it because going back to the whole like how do you start a meetup being enthusiastic about something and then trying to build a community that way makes people excited as well so people are attracted they're like oh I want to do this too because like you know this person is really cool and I want to know more and it's a community and like I've actually had people at meetups that we've organized here who don't write view, who just like do view on the side, but they think they really enjoy just like the people and they're like, the content is really cool. I just want to like kind of get in touch with people who are writing view because I really like view, but work doesn't allow me to write view <laughs> and so on. So that's always really cool. It's like a very like grassroots level <laughs> organizing, which is like basically what a meetup is. If you think about it, it's not a conference. It's just like people building cool stuff and wanting to talk about it. Yeah. yeah. One one thing I like about meetups too is I'm kind of an introverted person. I get a lot of my energy being alone, but when I'm with other people, I mean, I don't get a, a ton of opportunities and meetups is a great place to meet people, like-minded people like myself who like technology, love making things a little geeky. So that that's a cool thing too, just, uh, just the connection part. Yeah, and I feel like because meetups are 
I have been to some meetups that are pretty unstructured as well, but if you want meetups to be structured, they can be pretty structured. And so I find that is a great opportunity to create some kind of overlap space for intro more introverted styles and extroverted styles where there is like some kind of system for how to interact with people. So everybody can get like the extroverts can get like the social aspect and introverts can get the social aspect, but also not have to worry about like, how is this going to be right? Like, what are my expectations? Just setting those in advance, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Yeah, and then moving along, you're also, so like, I guess it's in the same realm as meetups, but also giving talks. Like this is something that you've been doing recently. How did you get into that? Was it as a result of organizing a meetup and giving talks there that you started moving towards giving them more often? Do you mean just giving talks in general or like giving the talk at ViewConf US? Or just giving talks in general. Yeah, so basically I started out by helping out with a local React and Angular meetup and the Angular organizer also did some kind of open source thing where you had to know Angular and it was to create an an online class that's self-directed to teach people Angular and I was like, I don't know Angular, but I studied it for a week and I started going to that and at one point he needed me to fill in for his volunteer role at the React meetup and and then he was like, do you want to do this regularly? And I was like, no. And then I was like, yes, you know, because of the, the fear thing. So that's how I got started. And like, he is very much as well, like a, a volunteering style. So one day he was like, we need to talk about what's new in Angular. Who wants to talk about it? And I was, nobody volunteered. So I was like, somebody has to do it. So that was how I got started. And even though I didn't completely understand all of the features that were being introduced into Angular or whatever it was at the time, maybe four, or it was what's new in TypeScript or something. I don't know. You can find it online. Being up there and helping people find out about this news and like sharing the excitement about it, I guess, it seemed like it was fun for the audience because they could get information in a slightly more interactive or exciting way. And it was exciting for me because I got to learn something and communicate something and then talk with people about what I had learned or tried to learn afterwards. Um, So that was how I got started in giving talks. And then after, after that, you know, as the view organizer, we have, I, I would say, probably a similar makeup where a lot of our attendees and speakers are people who view on the side for fun, either because they love the community or they love the framework or they love the docs. But sometimes we have months where there aren't necessarily a lot of speakers lined up, right? And then we should still have some content there. So it kind of 
I either I either try to come up with a talk to or a workshop to fill a need, or I'm struggling with something at work, and then I'm like, well, I spent all this time trying to understand this thing. Maybe I should try to codify that and share that knowledge with other people because hopefully they've also faced that frustration, which I think is one of the understated joys of giving talks is you can go up there and be like, man, this thing was really hard and annoying to figure out. And everybody there is like, oh yeah, I hate that too. And <laughs> it's such a good feeling. Yeah, definitely. I've been in this boat as well because a lot of the times you would organize a meetup and you want people will come because they really want that. But volunteering speakers often is is hard because we'll be like a couple months in or you know, a couple months in the future, we wouldn't have anything scheduled and we want to have a regular meetup. So it ends up being like, okay, organizers, let's try to volunteer ourselves to give a talk. But a lot of the times it's like very much what you said. You go up and you're like, this is something that we've struggled with. And like, this is my very informal way of how I like solved it, which is like, it's very relatable. And I think the nice thing about giving talks at meetups is you can practice a lot of content and you actually get really cool ideas for talks. So you would give a talk on something that you would see as like, oh, this is not really interesting or not. It's interesting, but not, not interesting enough for like a longer talk. And then you'll give the talk and then people will give you feedback or ask you questions, which makes you flesh it out much more. And then you start realizing, oh, I maybe could develop this further, um, which I think is really cool. Yeah. And there's another organizer here who like, he organizes a meetup called New York City Boot Campers Anonymous. And he's like a really gregarious and outgoing guy. And like basically because I think I think he goes into organizing the meetup. This is just my unconfirmed suspicion. Like expecting that he's probably not going to be able to find speakers for that month or he will, but also he will still have to give a talk. So he sets topics for himself that he's going to learn to speak about at the meetup every month. And so he kind of uses it to drive his own education and learning at the same time as trying to level up all of these bootcamp grads because he was a bootcamp grad. So it's, it's very much about like, how can we make you more marketable and how can we get you to be a part of this network and to help the tech community in New York City grow and thrive. And I think that's a really cool and admirable approach that I don't know if I, I could have the energy and tenacity to do it, but that is another way. And it seems really awesome. Yeah, that's a really cool way of like, it takes like the talk-driven development or talk-driven growth development. Yeah, to like a whole new level. It's like the most hardcore kind of blogging. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's the best way to learn. I mean, if that is something that gives you motivation to learn rather than like, and doesn't stress you out too much. Yeah. Then, so like going back to just like building, because we, we keep coming back to this in terms of like building communities because like teaching organizing and like giving talks all kind of feeds back into this like how can we build a robust community and so like I remember you you mentioned a little bit about how to get because there's at meetups you tend to get the spectrum of people who are introverted people who are extroverted just like everything how do you like kind of motivate people to talk to each other or to like interact at a meetup rather than like passively just like absorb content and leave, eat your food and leave? That's a good question. It's, it's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. Like even when I'm not at work and I'm not working on the meetup or the talk, like I tend to be reading books about how to increase like workplace happiness or like how to run more effective meetups. Like there's this book called The Art of Gathering that is basically just about creating 
inviting meetups or meetings. And I was like, that sounds like a fantastic way to spend my time. Um, so cool. So yeah, definitely recommend that book. So it's, it's something that I think about a lot. And as well, like I tend to be on the more introverted side, but people are always really surprised to hear that. Like they think that I'm an extrovert. So hopefully that means that I can navigate both worlds and see both sides. I don't know, but coming up with different ways to structure interactions. Like one time, I think we had a giveaway for tickets to some kind of talk or workshop. And oh yeah, Evan was speaking at another meetup in New York called Manhattan JS. And so we bought however many life cycles there are, I think minus the error one, because I didn't see that one before it. I don't know if it was new at the time, but I was like, where did that come from? Maybe eight tickets. And I created this exercise where when you came to the meetup, you were given a sheet of paper that had your life cycle hook and you had a question on there that you had to ask other people. And so the idea was that during the break and before the meetup, all of the attendees, if they wanted to win tickets to see Evan talk, basically had to ask that question to their fellow attendees and try and find like a full collection of all the life cycle hooks, if that makes sense. And then what they had all learned about each other. And, um, Recently, we, when we had two speakers, we had Jen Luber and Diana Rodriguez, and neither of them are from New York. So they were coming in from out of town. So we had a lunch before the talk, because like I had also just flown in from Korea. So we all arrived in New York and then went straight to this lunch and I invited a bunch of local developers, like some who work in view and some who don't, and asked them to share what they value about community. So just trying to shape the conversation around a shared purpose. And last month, we didn't have a host or speakers. So we did a similar thing where we hosted a dinner and invited a bunch of past speakers and said that they could bring a guest. I made like this really structured agenda with invitations and a bunch of different kinds of activities where they had to, for example, bring an object from home, like a physical thing that had special meaning to them and then talk about it. And uh, I asked them to share a bunch of information about themselves. And then at the end, I had them write down what they learned about each other on these little cards. And um, then surprise, surprise, we were going to play Pictionary with those cards. And they were like, oh, no, I wrote down programming concepts. And also somebody wrote down Tessa for some reason. And so this woman was drawing a picture of a woman with long hair who was holding a camera because I was photographing the event. And both teams had their chance to try to guess this card. And the second team, I swear to God, they were like, woman photographer with long hair. And then this woman drew an arrow pointing to me and they still did not guess it right. It was a good time. That's so cool. I really like that. Every time I think about organizing meetups, and I, I think this is a general feeling as well, is that it's the same format. It's always, you have to organize a talk and then you have to get pizza, usually pizza. <laughs> and then <laughs> you have to like put it on meetup.com or, or wherever you syndicate content for that. And then like people come, there's always a talk and then there's food and then, which is like if in that same format, there are some occasions where I've seen people actually like interact with each other. But in those formats, it doesn't encourage that at all because it's very much, it puts the onus on the attendee pretty much to interact with other attendees. And most of the time, if the meetup is after work, for, ex- for instance, it's like six or seven. Most people are really like, I'm just here to like listen to this and then go home. I don't care. Yeah, um, you're very much like in a participant mode already coming. Yes, exactly. And so the way I really like how structured or how you're thinking about it in terms of just like 
optimizing for people to have to interact with one another because then you're really building a community because I think like meetups in general, like where someone gives a talk and there are people who passively listen is one way of a community, but it's not necessarily very engaging because, you know, people don't remember who attended. They don't know. They might see familiar faces, but not actually know who they are and so on. And so in this particular case, and I think it's really like creative. The exercise is so creative. Yeah, really, it's all about just finding ways to disguise volunteering, if you think about it, and trying to create like sleeper cells of people who have been like activated to be to feel more like they belong in the community so that they can hopefully infect other people with that feeling. Yeah, definitely. Because I think we usually have this in so in, in the community in, in Chicago, we have a couple of people who are really engaged and really excited and they will like you know, take the initiative to talk to other people or just be generally very excited. But then there's a lot of people who are like first timers who have never come or who come one time and then don't show up again. And so with this, you're kind of incentivizing more people to do that who are less willing to though, because they might come in being like, I want to be passive, but this exercise is so interesting and I want to like do more. Also, I want to potentially win tickets or whatever. So there's like more of that aspect of it which makes it so cool yeah and then in some of the smaller events you might learn learn things about your meetup or hear feedback that you wouldn't have heard otherwise like at the last one this woman told me like oh I like your meetup because you have two to three talks so I always know that even if I don't get anything out of one talk there's two others and that variety makes it interesting where to me I just thought that that was like the norm because that's how a lot of the meetups that I've gone to are structured so it didn't occur to me like oh that's that's our power and as I was thinking about as well, like trying to make our meetup more useful. Because we've been having a lot of people be like, oh, I made this like GraphQL app. Can I talk about the meetup? And it's like, not the way the talk is right now, but it does feel like those are potentially things that could be useful to view devs as well, right? So then I've, I've been trying to more actively now solicit talks that aren't necessarily strong about you, but are useful to view developers. So for example, next month, hopefully we're going to have a talk from a UX UI designer who, who is going to discuss like what are great patterns that front end devs should know. Or like I asked a product manager I know who went back to development, like when you were a product manager, what are things that developers could have done to foster a more effective relationship with you? Just like useful, hopefully career skills and community skills. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, let me ask you this. Do you guys have like mandatory or, or encouraged after happy hours, after your meetups? Because a lot of meetups I go to, I've been to, they're like, okay, we're gonna have two talks today. And then we're all meeting at the pub around the corner. You think that's effective too, to kind of get some more conversation and community going? We do do that. Um, I've started to call it something other than happy hour because I do feel like there's a lot of emphasis in the developer community, at least in New York on drinking. And I am not the biggest drinker. And as well, like I usually try to pick a place that has like, meal options if people are still hungry as well as like a slightly quieter place where they can talk so since the purpose isn't really drinking per se i'm not sure what kind of impact changing the naming around it has but it is sometimes effective and sometimes less effective recently it's more been a way to speak to some of the more enthusiastic or proactive meetup attendees or just get to know the speakers better but i think even if if you can't go which can get tricky with the code of conduct situation. It is nice to, again, like give a structure and a plan so that if people do want to hang out, right, then they don't have that 
hesitation or that cognitive load of having to decide where to go. They might not like the, the suggestion, but at least that gives them something to push against and be like, well, we're not going to go there. We can go to this other place. So making it easier for people to hang out afterwards if they want. But I, I do think that it is a bit of the challenge of being a meetup organizer, right? Like comedians talk about how they have to be on all the time. And I do think that that tends to be true for meetup organizers as well, because maybe after the meetup, especially if you give a talk, you're tired and you want to go home, but people want to talk to you or people reach out to you outside the meetup. And maybe if you're introverted, it's harder. I don't know. But like, they're like, hey, I'm really excited about the meetup and blah, blah, blah. And you kind of have to like meet their enthusiasm, you know, and it's not like you don't want to, but it is a challenge to have to do it all the time. Yeah, exactly. And especially as an organizer, when you've done all the work before the meetup. (laughs) So it's not just you're on at the meetup, you're on like before up till the meetup, during the meetup. And then at the end, when you think all is well, and you can finally take a break, (laughs) you can't. Yeah, you Um, go, you go hang out with them at the bar, and then you're on and then afterwards, you email everybody like, thank you so much. And you're on and you go home and somebody messaged you like, I really enjoyed the meetup. And then you're never off. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's like, it's super useful to just know when to take a break. But like, I think it's really, really neat that just like the level of enthusiasm and care that you put towards your community. It's like, it's, it's so inspiring, because I feel like, I I kind of feel like I'm, I'm slacking over here. Just the way that I organize meetups is like, oh, we just need a speaker. We'll find a speaker, then we'll find a venue, then we'll be like, okay, we'll order pizza on the day of and that's about it. But this is really inspiring because now I'm like, okay, how can I actually be better about this? Because there's so much that I could possibly do to make it much more engaging and interesting to people. You've been infected? Yes. I think it's so cool. Like, honestly, I, I have never really thought about this as deeply as you have, unfortunately. <laughs> Which I should have, but um, but yeah, this is really cool. I think there's a lot of good different ways to organize meetups, and that's how we get such an awesome variety of ideas and styles. You guys can probably speak to this much better. How do you be more inclusive in your meetups and get all types of people? I know women in tech is a big issue. I mean, how do you, if there's 20 guys and two women, does that kind of make it hard to get more people in and more people, especially uh, women or, or people of color or things like that? Do you think about that during your meetup organization? when you're organizing a meetup? Yeah, I think about it all the time. I can't say that I'm very good at it. And like, I do empathize with a lot of frustration where people are like, how, how do I be better at inclusion? And then the response is like, you shouldn't be asking me, you should be doing research or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, but where do I research? Which is part of the reason that like, I'm reading so much about events. And it's tough as well, because I don't want to like, tokenize people and be like, you should come because you fit X demographic. Um, So yeah, I don't, I don't really have any good answers. I just try to do better. Like when we first started, we didn't have a code of conduct, for example. And as I stayed in the meetup world longer, I started to understand better, like what the point is of a code of conduct, right? Because I feel like a lot of people are like, why do we need that? That's so obvious, right? And it might seem obvious at first, but once you start to think about it and observe, you notice ways that maybe it isn't obvious. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? It's just a sign that it's something we need to work on. So my first step there was adopting a code of conduct. And then the next step was like, well, I noticed a lot of confusion over how the code of conduct works. Like, how do you follow it? What happens if you violate the code of conduct? Like, are you a terrible person forever? So as I was looking into that, I found the Recurse Center's community guidelines, which they are very clear about saying are distinct from their code of conduct, but 
it had a, a set of guidelines basically about how to handle situations where somebody makes you feel uncomfortable or unwelcome and like how, how to address that from both ends of the table. So giving and getting feedback is something I also spend an excessive amount of time thinking about because I don't think there's that many good resources on it. And I thought that that gave like a really nice starting structure for how to deal with that specific situation. So then I incorporated their community guidelines into our boilerplate that we tell everybody they need to follow and uh, gave a talk explaining the community guidelines and examples of situations that might violate the guidelines or the code of conduct and what are some ways that attendees could feel empowered to incorporate those from either side of the table. And uh, then where was I going with this? I don't remember. But yeah, ultimately, your your community is what you're trying to build, right? So I think that's also what excites me about meetups is it, it doesn't really feel like I'm doing something special per se, but as a member of the community, it is partially my responsibility to shape that community, whether I do it actively or not, like I will undeniably be a part of it or like that will be partially a result of what I do. So trying to make what I do have a positive impact, I think is just how I try to focus on it. I'll remember that other thought in a bit, I'm sure. Sorry. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought up the Recurse Center Code of Conduct. So like, I, I think they've done like a really good job of explaining. Like, They have a very, very in-depth, well-thought-out Code of Conduct that they're constantly updating as well. So they're always like, oh, this thing happened. Let's like review and see if like we're actually addressing all possible concerns. Because the thing with Codes of Conduct is that, is it Codes of con- Codes? Code, code of Conduct? Codes I think you of Conduct? Yeah, I think you got COCs is that um, that a lot of the times you talk about there's a lot of this idea of good intentions. So you're like, I intend like it, it's created for good intentions, but then sometimes when things happen, there's like no real protocol. You're like, okay, what now? And a COC sometimes doesn't always cover all the bases. And Recurse, I think, does such a good job of just explaining it. If you've ever attended Recurse, they have this like poster, which is so cool, which is just like kind of a a quick summary of things to note, right? Which is like, I think it was no well actually is no backseat driving, no like feigning surprise, like things like that, which is things that happen a lot of the times. And sometimes like you might mean it from the best of intentions. So you're like, I didn't intend for it to come across as obnoxious or whatever, but someone else might take it as that. And so it's like a really great thing to keep in mind. And so before a meetup, it's like, it's so important to just note that, to be like, hey, we're an inclusive space. This is something that we care about because we want to make sure that people don't feel isolated or excluded in any way. And like, this is how we address it if ever it comes up. In terms of inclusivity, that's always, that's an issue that like a lot of communities face because it's very much like, you don't want to target people to be like, you're a person of color. You should come to my meetup. Because that's just not the way to do it. Like the idea is hopefully by creating these inclusive spaces and by also trying to create more exposure around your event. So posting it on multiple platforms and making sure people from underrepresented communities have the, like there's visibility of this event happening. Like you can increase your chance more like well represented and well attended, but again, like I don't know if there's like a hard and fast rule really for it because it's very much 
and also unfortunately it, it's kind of similar to the chicken and egg problem because you're like okay i don't have a lot of underrepresented minorities at my meetup and then people who are underrepresented minorities look at your meetup and they're like this is not a space for me so they don't show up <laughs> and so you're like it's kind of this like circle because you want your meetup to be diverse because if your meetup is diverse then it hope people who are not of a majority demographic will be like, okay, I see myself in this space. But if your meetup isn't diverse, then yeah, it's kind of a, it's a really frustrating, annoying problem. It's the same problem as like, oh, I'm a junior developer, but like all junior developer jobs require 10 years of experience. <laughs> like, where am I going to get this experience? Yeah, it's really frustrating. And something like I've also thought about extensively and I don't, yeah, I don't think I'm like an expert at this. I'm still learning too, so... Yeah, it's it's really tough. And like, I think, well, one one thing that I, I did, so the thing that I was thinking about before was like, I've noticed an issue sometimes where like maybe speakers don't follow the code of conduct or like they're not really aware of it. So then we worked it into our speaker sign up form. So now when you sign up, it's like the first thing you see and we explain like why it's really important to us and like what we expect from you as a speaker. Because even though you're like up there and everybody else is like watching you, you're still a part of the community, right? So why why we came up with the code of conduct and like why we think it's important and just asking speakers to like confirm like multiple times that they read and understand and agree to follow it and trying to be vocal and um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not like blatant, but like clearly like signal that we do have, like we do value inclusivity and belonging. And those are our chief goals as a meetup. And I think trying to work in the undercurrent of part of what I think makes View such a great framework and community, that progressive nature, right? Where you can do a little bit or you can do a lot and trying to make like the community that way too. Like you can do as little or as much as makes you feel comfortable. Hopefully it makes people feel more welcome at the meetup. I don't know when I see talks that are addressing this, like I try to either go to them or learn more about them, but yeah. I wish I, wish I had a good answer. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think there's any great answers. It's just one of those things that, like like you guys are both saying, having good rules of conduct is definitely the first step. But yeah, you can't drag people in. You can't just go <laughs> and find random people and, and drag them into your meetup. It's not like college, so you can't be like, okay, I'm going to do 10% of this minority and 100% of this, or 60% of this. No, you just, whoever's going to show up, is going to show up. And, and you just have to be okay when they're showing up and treat them with dig- dignity and respect and, and recognize there's, a lot of different types of opinions and people out there. I think we probably wrap it up here. Yeah. So I before we wrap it up, I want to shed light on Tessa's talk a little bit. Like I, I want us to talk about it a little just to be, Tessa, could you just talk about what you're going to be mentioning at ViewConf? Because I, I find this really exciting. I'm really excited for your talk. Yeah. So I'll be talking about next tick. Like what even is it? Even I don't know. I, I wish I knew. So <laughs> hopefully I will, I will be speaking more to what that is and when you would use it and how you would use it and why, why it is. And as well, talk about my struggle learning to understand what it is because of this learning model, I guess, that I've coined trash brain that makes it difficult to pick up new concepts. Can you explain what Trash Brain is for people who are listening who may not be familiar? Yeah, so Trash Brain is this idea, like, for example, if you're on your way home and you always go one way and 
this time you make one slightly wrong turn and you're completely lost and you can't find your way home again. And then you eventually do, but it takes you so much longer to get home than it would have if you hadn't made that wrong turn. And let's say you live at the top of a hill. So once you get home, you look down and you realize that you were just like one step off the whole time and you feel like really dejected that you couldn't just figure it out, even though it's basically the same route that you've been taking home for like 10 years or something. It's that kind of idea where you might know the solution to a problem, but it's extremely context specific. And the reason that I called it trash brain was partially because I feel like I'm a very like, I guess there's like test driven development and like annoyance driven development. And I kind of sometimes do like smell driven development where something will smell and I don't know why, but it definitely is like a very strong and, um, like obvious scent there. And so I'll investigate it. And like most of the time it's like, there was a good reason that there was a smell, but some of the time I'm led astray and trash tends to smell. And like, also I thought about how ants, once they find a food source, they get back to it by following like a very specific route and they can't stray from that route. And also sometimes when at the time, like a friend I was talking to, he would always think it was really hilarious when I described something as trash, which is some of the slang du jour. So I guess it was just like a, a happy, trashy coincidence of all of those things that, yeah, developed this idea. I think we chatted about this before, but it's a very relatable idea that I've I never, so. I've never immortalized it into this into a word. I usually just, it's just like you're just your brain is kind of fuzzy, or like there's all these various ways of alluding to it without actually explaining what that thing is. But I think it's a general, like you said, something that everyone has experience over, especially with regards to specific concepts that you learn. So if we were to adapt it, it's like, oh, I'm very familiar with this particular pattern, like whatever it may be. And then the moment someone says like, oh yeah, blah, blah, blah. And then they, they explain it in a different way that you're not very familiar with. It might be the same problem, but the words being used are different and the context of the problem is different and that makes you completely, that throws you off. You have like this sense that it's similar, like you were saying, the smell-driven development. You're like, hmm, this, this seems familiar, but I can't quite place why. And that's something that is like a very common thing that I experience a lot of the times, like with development especially. I'll be yeah, I remember you were talking about it in relation to like learning Spanish. Oh yeah, exactly. It goes much further than that. Because I think it's kind of putting two and two together. So you're like, I understand the grammar. It makes sense. I know how to, like, you know, she walked or she has walked. And you're like, okay, that makes sense. But then the moment you have to construct a sentence that's similar but different, your brain just is like, I don't know. Yeah, it's like the comics, again, like the gaps between the panels that you have to fill on your own feel so big and like insurmountable. Yeah. I think, yeah. yeah. Sometimes it's very much with specific things, like with languages, it's, you, can, you can do that by rote memory. You just memorize it and then you kind of drill it into your brain because there is a very specific pattern to language. With programming, sometimes like, yeah, there, is, there are patterns, but those patterns are so different in various scenarios. I guess you could say the same for language, but yeah, it's frustrating because then you're like, how do I get back to where I was or how do I solve this problem that I have? Like you were saying specifically you're exploring next tick and like what next tick means. And then your this like idea of a trash brain makes it so difficult 
to because you just end up in circles. You're like, I think this is what it means, but this is not what it means. I think this is what it means. And then you're just like, you end up like walking in a circle. Uh, like even when we were looking at Nextic the other day, and like Nextic is tied to like the DOM rendering, right? And I was like, I don't think that any of these is causing a re-render, but I'm not sure. But it just felt like, you know, we had gone in circles back to thinking over and over again, but then we are like, okay, it's going somewhere. But then I was like, I just made an even bigger circle back to the beginning. Or like with the V-model stuff earlier, right? Why had I never thought to make that connection before when it seems so obvious in hindsight? Like, I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure you'll figure it out because Nextic is a really important and like an important concept and really interesting in the context of view. So yeah, there's definitely a lot to talk about in your talk and I'm sure you'll I'm sure you'll do great. Yeah, well, people will have to stay tuned for March 26th or 27th or if they're watching it in the future then the past, which is great cuz my talk title has time travel in it. Oh, wait, does it? I think so. It was like back to the future or something. Oh, yes, that's right. Cuz I think your um your Toronto one was next tick down to business or something. I loved yeah. it. So great. That was a great title. But yeah, I think this one was like back to the future or something about the event loop. Yeah, because like I'm just stuck in there going over the same idea over and over again. I'll figure it out eventually someday before I die. <laughs> it's an eternal learning concept. And so like, yeah, the nice thing about all of this is that as frustrating as this process of trash brain is, it's a little different from when you get lost a little because when you get lost and you don't know where you are, you learn nothing from that experience (laughs) you just were lost and wasted a bunch of time but trash brain with specific to learning yeah you're going in circles but your brain is making connections that you might not see currently but like it might become clearer the moment you reach that point of clarity you're like oh i made all these connections and now i understand the whole layout of like my neighborhood for example yeah that's that's how it works out in the end if, if you're lucky I feel like that's how it works out, yeah. Exactly, yeah. It, comes, it all comes out in the wash, I guess. Cool. So we are about to hit the end of this session. Is there anything else that you want to plug or talk about that we haven't mentioned yet? I guess if you are in New York City or even if you're not in New York City and want to give a talk at the View Meetup promoter in person, hit us up at viewjs.myc. Nice. That would be cool. I'll have to head there sometime. I don't think I've ever been to any of the view meetups there. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs. And this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash view. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. Awesome. Thank you for being on the podcast. Before we wrap up, we usually do this thing called picks where you pick three things that you are excited about, currently interested in. Um, And so I won't put you on the spot. I'll start with Eric. Eric, would you like to go first? 
Sure. Yeah. I've been really, we talked about Vutify earlier. So I've been kind of deep diving to Vutify. It's like a component material design framework for Vue.js. I've been trying to learn the ins and outs of it, trying to extend it. Pretty cool. So you can check that out, Vutify. And then I've also been looking at Chris Fritz's Enterprise Boilerplate. I think we've talked about it several times on the show, but it's a really cool repo. It has a lot of best practices that you can do in Vue.js with uh, a boilerplate app. Like for example, I was looking at the modules, how he does his automatic module import for Vuex, which is kind of neat. He actually also has a way you can automatically have certain things in your store be automatically dispatched as soon as the app starts, which I thought was really neat too. So the Vue Enterprise boilerplate from Chris Fritz to keep the repo would be the second one. And for the third one, I'm just uh, looking forward to I haven't seen Captain uh, Captain Marvel yet. I definitely want to see that. Looks good. Nice. Yeah, I haven't seen that either. I'll have to watch that. I still haven't watched um, the Spider-Verse movie either, which I really want to watch. It's been on my list for a while. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I, I don't think I've seen a superhero movie since the first Avengers. Oh, yeah. Well. I think there's a couple of them on Netflix. Like I watch Ant-Man and Wasp on Netflix. It's pretty good. Cool. Tessa, do you want to go? And then I can go last. Yeah, sure. Um, So I picked things in, I guess, three different categories. So books, food, and movies. Nice. So I went to a workshop recently for a book called No Hard Feelings. And that's about like developing a culture of inclusion and belonging at work. So I guess in terms of like trying to make your event seem more inclusive or make people feel like they belong, then that might be a good way to go. Or looking at the other direction, I read a book last year called Insight that's about increasing self-awareness. And um, yeah, so that's like two directions on a similar problem, I think. For food, I was thinking about this um, a few weeks ago when I was originally going to be on the podcast where like, it's something that I think a lot of Koreans know about, but I don't know that I've ever seen anybody else eat this snack. So it's like taking a, a pack of ramen, right? And then you break it up into little pieces and you put the soup on, on the ramen, but then you eat it without cooking it. Like if you want to make it a little bit crispier, you can microwave it for like 30 seconds. And I don't know which came first. There was a popular snack when I was in school called which means like break it up. And it was basically like an imitation of eating ramen in this manner. But one of my friends at the time tried cooking it to just eat it as normal ramen, and she said it was awful. But if, if you haven't tried that as a snack, maybe something to try. I've only ever tried it with, like, Korean ramen, which tends to be pretty spicy, so I don't know how it would work with something like chicken flavor. So instead of cooking the ramen, you would break it up? Bag, yeah, yeah. Uh, like pieces. I used to eat that as a kid. There was this um, brand called, like, Mommy... And it has like this blue monster on the front of it. And it's basically instant noodles, but it's marketed as you eat it like a snack. So no yeah, one actually exactly. cooks it. You just kind of eat it. Right. It's like that. Yeah. So if, if people haven't tried it, maybe maybe give it a go. Um, my go-tos are usually like a brand called Nogudi, which means like raccoon, which is the metaphor that I used in my last trash brain talk. It's spelled Neoguri. And then the other brand that I like is Shin. So those are usually the two that I eat. And then my movie recommendations. um, When I was on vacation, I watched Get Smart with my dad. And I was just surprised that it was funnier than I expected. But it also had kind of a nice message of 
like Steve Carell's character in the movie, it seems like he is very, he cares a lot about inclusion and seeing people as people and like they have their own pain points and motivations for why they behave the way they do. So just trying to accept them where they are seemed like apropos considering like the theme of what we've been talking about. And then on the plane, they had a movie called The Accidental Detective Returns, or in Korean, it's just like The Detective Returns. And it's about, I guess it's a sequel. It's about these two guys who aren't like trained private eyes, but they do it for fun. And it was just a surprisingly amusing movie. So, yeah. That's cool. I'll have to check that out. So on the topic of food, I'm going to have to do... That the snack thing, because I really want that. <laughs> I'm going to have to try that with like yes, regular instant noodles because I've never actually thought of, I just assumed I had to get like specific snack type things. Yeah, that's how the marketing in Korea worked too. And then like people around me who care about me were like, you're so stupid, Tessa, just use normal ramen. So, so in, totally like side note, but when I lived in Ohio, there was this thing, it was like kind of weird, but my coworkers would create like Asian salads. I, I thought it was like just a weird salad because in, in Ohio, like it's a stereotype where salads are generally just iceberg lettuce and like salad dressing. <laughs> oh and, and so like these Asian salads that they would make is pretty much like a salad, which is cabbage and then maybe some iceberg lettuce and carrots. And then they would smash like ramen in it with like those tiny mandarin oranges they were horrible they were the worst salad yeah it's an awful salad it reminds me of when i was at trader joe's last summer and i saw their chinese inspired salad and i guess that's better because they at least picked a country but i thought it said chicken inspired salad and i was horrified (laughs) chicken inspired salad oh my god yeah, that that's really weird. But um, that's not my food pick because that is not like appetizing at all. So I, I really like chocolate and biscuits or like cookies together, but more like chocolate covered cookies. So like a digestive? Um, yes. Yes. I'm so glad you know what a digestive is because a lot of people don't know what that is. Oh, yeah. Um, we have a Korea too. Yeah. So I used to eat them a lot when I was a kid. So I love digestives. I still eat them. But I found like a level up from digestives. There's a brand called Asher's and they're out of Philadelphia or somewhere. They might not be. They're somewhere. They're out in like somewhere in the U.S. They're American based and they create these like chocolate covered graham crackers. And they are so wonderful Um, because it's like it's very decadent because the level of chocolate is a lot compared to the graham cracker. Like it's very thick. Because most of the time, like, the digestive is just, like, a thin layer. But this is a lot. But they're really good with, like, coffee or tea if you dip them because the chocolate, like, melts a little. I've heard people say when I introduce them to it that they should eat it with, a s'more, with like, a s'more. So, like, with a marshmallow. But I don't care for marshmallows because I think they're, like, a weird texture. I so roast Ashers? them. Ashers. You yeah. roast the marshmallows or the cookie? You could, like... Because the cookie already has the chocolate and the gra- the chocolate around the graham cracker, so you could just put a marshmallow on the top. I see. So you would roast the marshmallow and then put it on the top and eat it. But I haven't tried it because I think the the biscuit itself is is very delightful. Yeah, it um, sounds like a, a lot. Do you know what ASMR is? Yes. Yeah. So there's this woman called like ASMR Angel or something, and so like a lot of these people, they have regular features. Like I guess like how. Sometimes I have to like give talks like they have features so that it's easy for them to have 
regular content. And so she has this feature. She's Biscuits of Britain and beyond. And basically, it just involves her eating a bunch of cookies either from Britain or from outside Britain if people send her the cookies. And then she'll like rate them on how good their sounds are and stuff. But she'll also talk about how they taste and like how good they are for dipping into tea. And so I just watch that all the time. And then like a lot of times I don't even like the cookies, but it's just novel to see her be like, oh, this is a really good cookie or it's not a really good cookie. And then it gives me more cookies to go out and try. Oh my God, I really want to try it. I want to watch this now. I recently started watching, I guess this is my next pick, but I started recently watching this video. So personally, I don't watch a lot of ASMR videos, but I found this like cooking channel video that happened to be ASMR because I was watching it and I was like, why is this so, why is this so enthralling? <laughs> it was, because you could just like, it was so calming. You could hear every action that she, so she was, she was making like Japanese cheesecake and like you would hear the sound of her like slicing through the cake and slicing through butter. And I was like, this is just, it's so satisfying. It's like beautiful <laughs> sounds, right? Yeah, it's like a beautiful sound. And I was like, okay, I kind of, I understand now. Because for a long time I was like, what is this? Because ASMR videos, some of them can be really weird. I think yeah. Chris was the one who told me about them. And I was like, oh, let me go look at a couple. And then I was like, I don't know. Some of these look like softcore porn, like very weird. <laughs> Like, why is... I can't watch this. But yeah, so my picks are these crackers or these biscuits. What was my second pick? I guess just like ASMR cooking videos because they're really cool and like you learn a lot from them and they're very relaxing. And then my last pick is I'm a regular public library user, which I love. I love my public library because a lot of the times you can... They have up-to-date books and you can actually request new ones so if there's a book that they don't currently have, you can actually submit a request for them to buy it. And if they see it as like a very popular book that they should add to their inventory, they do, which I think is super cool. So it kind of saves you money as well because you don't have to buy the book. I end up like paying for stuff because I rack up fines from the library. <laughs> so, But it's still cheaper than if I bought the book myself and I don't have like, I don't have to store the book physically either, which is nice. So. Yeah, that's why I've been reading more ebooks lately, even though I love paper because, like, I know that I won't get rid of the book after. And so that just yeah. saves me that heartbreak. Yeah, definitely. Cool. So thank you, Tessa, for being on the podcast. It was great. Thank and you for having me on. It was nice speaking to you, too. Yeah. And with that, this is the end of this podcast recording. And till next time, enjoy the view. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.